0: The Gran School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business.
1: I think the food stamps story just reemphasizes your entrepreneurial roots, that you can make anything into a business. And I didn't tell you this, but uh, in some of the information I read about her first entrepreneurial effort was sewing Barbie clothes for her friends in the neighborhood when she was a child. So she's had this sort of entrepreneurial interest for her entire life. And no money. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, you, you talked some about the economic summit and uh, the... One of the outcomes of that was this sense of entrepreneurship being so important to sort of rebooting uh, the economy. So I don't know how much this came up, but we see our our government here doing so much sort of with the big companies and the banks and the financial institutions. Um, What else can be done or what else needs to happen to help entrepreneurs and to really it generate energy there and funding there or is that going to happen through the private venture fund market
2: well I don't think there's much more that needs to be done here in Silicon Valley and probably not in Boston Mm -hmm. and there's some other big entrepreneurial areas Atlanta's you know sort of gotten its mojo together Um, Minneapolis somewhat, Austin, uh, Texas because we really have uh, a true ecosystem for entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. it's not just add money and you get a company it really is you know when we're working with our companies we work really hard to help you recruit we make sure that we get your corporate lawyer is also a company builder everyone who's around the company is a risk reduction entrepreneur. so you know over the last you know few decades this has become like Mesopotamia here it's it's the cradle of company creation and it's even better than you know than you know in Boston Mm -hmm. but here we don't really have to do much except not panic you know just do what we know how to do and really be very very disciplined about how we do it creating that ecosystem from scratch is is really really hard um, you know different You know, I think schools of entrepreneurship are having a dramatic impact on some other um, you know regional areas um, because they're acting as a magnet for other parts of the community They're usually endowed by people who are successful entrepreneurs, so there's a role model there. But the rest of the world does not have that same value of entrepreneurs. Dubai, and uh, we were talking about it uh, earlier. um, You know, there was a if you if you say what what's my role model for success, you either want to work for the government or you want to be an engineer in infrastructure because you see all the cranes. You know, and you don't want to fail you know this idea that failure is a is a route to learning and wisdom and that you know you're in in the entrepreneurship stream and you'll get smarter over time is really very very unique to specific regions of the country um, some of this is being recreated by outreach of venture capitalists here both in india and china mm-hmm. um, it's it's never quite really happened in europe if you, we watch these venture capital numbers again, we'll just see you know, investment dollars because this is not a fair weather business. This is a long-term commitment. Um, we're usually involved in our companies uh, you know, on average six and a half years. So when I join a board, I know I'm probably gonna go to that board meeting for six and a half years. That's a long mm-hmm. time. And that long-term view is also something really unique to our ecosystems.
1: So how, as we think about the world economy, and we know that that entrepreneurial culture is kind of unique to certain parts of the world and, and certainly particularly to the United States, how do we help build and develop that entrepreneurial spirit that's so important to building economies in third world countries and developing countries where that's just not part of the mindset?
2: Well, one of the things that has been fairly successful, and it's gotten fairly prescriptive, is microfinance,
1: mm-hmm,
2: sure. um, and that's working. Um, it's working all over the place. It still has not fully scaled. What's not working is if you talk to the microfinance um, groups in Pakistan or anyone else, and you say, what if you wanted to give risk capital? meaning you know it might not come back because these are loans remember Mm -hmm. microfinance somewhere between ten thousand and a million dollars they don't know who to give it to so there is just like you are pairing with UCSB to bring um, business intelligence to inventors Mm -hmm. and scientists there's not that tight pairing yet of, of core business intelligence how you would start a business and run a business so there's a huge gap in developing countries in the beginning parts of risk capital, um, for many of these companies, you know, ten or fifty thousand dollars, you know, can really create substantial sure. companies. But we have to figure out how we go the next step from microfinance lending to the first step mm-hmm. in risk capital. And the venture capital model is not going to work there because it's just not a scalable model even here. I mean you say that there's less than a thousand firms in the US and maybe that boils down to 600 by the end of next year it's not exactly huge average venture firm maybe has you know eight investing professionals at most so you're talking about six thousand people and maybe four to six thousand so we have to find a different way that we uh, bring business intelligence uh... to natural entrepreneurs so we can move them up the step of creating scalable businesses versus sole proprietorships. The reason microfinance has worked is it's been very women-led. There's a lot of solidarity. Women share, you know, taking care of their kids. They, you know, they say, "Here, I'll go," you know, sell my stuff. You watch the kids. So th- that has become very prescriptive in how it works. Um, but we don't really ha- have 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 any kind of plan of the first step in risk capital in emerging countries at the lowest level to build sustainable companies that have like 10 to 100 employees.
1: Are the right people working on that problem to try to bring some knowledge to it that can move in that direction so that we see more sustainable, larger businesses developing?
2: Well, you know, I don't, you know i don't know i think there's some opportunity some of the people that are running the, the um, ngos that are dealing with microfinance have gotten very sophisticated organizations and are great entrepreneurs themselves the woman who runs the ngo in pakistan that does microfinance has twenty five hundred employees i mean employees right. so certainly and these are fairly young entrepreneurial people themselves so it could be the same people who who brought the experience on microfinance, who might say, okay, I'm gonna take it to the next level. And universities have a big role to play here um, because how they can center the educational capabilities. um, And I think um, students traveling abroad and cross um, breeding of students traveling. At the University of St. Thomas, 85% of our undergraduates spend a semester abroad. Mm -hmm. uh, And they're encouraged to uh, work with NGOs on entrepreneurial projects. And that kind of stuff, it does become viral over time. But we also have to create more and more economies that exalt entrepreneurs, that value being an entrepreneur, and that's a harder task. That's a cultural barrier.
1: And we know changing culture takes significant periods of time, even in companies, so much less in countries, when you're trying to change years and years
2: of a different way of doing things. Yeah, usually even in our startup companies, Mm -hmm. if they, they arrive with cultures and if the culture's not working, the company doesn't work either. So we're not very good as business builders in changing cultures. <laughs> well, I'm gonna open
1: the floor to the audience and I'll add some additional questions for Ann as we go, but what would some of you like to ask Ann about this evening? Yes. A, yeah, stand up and speak up. So I, still, I had a political question right off the bat. the new uh, incoming Obama
3: administration and Congress are looking at some kind of economic stimulus plan, job creation, of course, what we're mainly hearing is dumping all the money to GM because of the obviously political reason that it has to be done. Uh, Could one make the case that maybe the entrepreneurs being the, and small business being the backbone of this country, that, that might play an important part with that uh, money to be infused and getting our country back on track?
2: Well, there are venture capital firms that have part of their um, investment coming from the Small Business Administration, so it doesn't play an insignificant role in sort of the capital that is behind the scenes here, even in Silicon Valley. Um, So we do have some, we don't as a venture firm, but some others do. But the, you know, the reason this all works here is we're not dependent upon Stimuluses, bailouts, etc. You know, the the you know, I will say I happily voted for Obama, but personally, I would just let GM go. You know, if we subsidized the steel industry, you know, what would Pittsburgh be today? If we had subsidized the um the you know effectively the auto industry earlier, we wouldn't have a BMW plant in you know Tennessee or a Toyota plant. So. You know, if you really believe in creative destructionism, you're not going to subsidize GM. Now, do I think the government's going to subsidize GM? Probably. Would I do it? I would just let it go. And you know, it would be painful, but it will be less painful to have sort of you <clears throat> know, everything artificially rolled up the business model doesn't hold anymore you know it's subsidizing yesterday's business to try to drag itself forward and it's broken um, and you know it is what it is we face this all the time uh... as venture capitalists where one of the hardest things we need to become a new venture capitalist is not a hundred percent of your companies are successful and I remember John Hummer saying to me you know you 're going to have to shut companies down sometime, and I go, "Not me, all my <laughs> companies will work never, ever, ever you know you know i 'll lay in front of a train for these companies, but every once in a while, and you know fortunately for us it hasn 't been that often, you just realize this isn 't not working, you know, and you don 't go out and get you know government subsidies or you know, debt financing to hold it up, especially in software. You just have to say, look, you know, I'm going to let it go and, you know, move on to a better business. So, you know, we're going to face a lot of interesting, uh, you know, issues as, you know, as we reboot our own economy. But most of these rules do not apply to entrepreneurs here, fortunately. You know, we really, you know, have to kind of, you know, we have to succeed on our own or we die. Oh, I don't know much about the Tesla business model. I never looked at it as a potential investor. Um, and I don't know how much difficulty they are having to raise capital. Um, but, you know, um, th- this is the sort of, you know, if you don't get the capital and you need it, you die. <laughs> you know, this is the creative destructionism that we're talking about here. Um, you know, I-, I think it would be you know there's enough people funding interesting energy companies shy agassi went has gone out and raised three hundred million dollars for you know a a play in the automotive sector and seems to have no problem raising unlimited capital maybe he's got a better business model than tesla i don't know and maybe tesla will be successful in raising more money i don't know where they are in that but you know if all of a sudden silicon valley starts you know getting on the bailout gravy train we won't be silicon valley anymore we really will not have the magic of company building of really focusing on our disruptions of really seeking new and innovative business models um, having efficiency in our businesses you know we will be detroit you know and we don't want to be that so you know i I personally think that, you know, you got to do what you got to do to get capital, so maybe Elon Musk will find capital, but I doubt that it's going to be an overarching theme here in Silicon Valley that, you know, maybe an anomaly of Tesla that will be reaching into new pockets of money. There is plenty of money here for the best of the best of new companies. Yeah,
0: back here. would get, um, would, would have its financing off balance sheet, so any risky investment at the corporate level uh, would not be reflected on their net income, their earnings per share, so they would not suffer by taking that chance. The investors, the private investors who made these investments would then have to get a large tax benefit, which is what we had then. We offered, and venture firm I was in, the did this, 80% write off. Ideas out of corporations and might even spur some of the activity that that you
2: were talking about? Realistically, um, it has been more, it's easier said than done to take IP out of a major corporation. Um, We have successfully taken IP out of universities several times, very successful. Two companies I was on the board of, one with the University of Minnesota and one with Stanford, both those companies ended up being you know public companies so um, that works easily Um, and the reason that works is that most of the universities aren't trying to make money on the IP they're really trying to get the flow of ideas out there so that they have more successful graduates they don't make money off the royalties realistically they make money from the wealthy graduates who become strong entrepreneurs contributing back to the institutions later so, you know, we have not been so successful in partnering with corporations, R&D groups. Um, and so, while the mechanics of the numbers sound good there, it's much harder to do from an execution phase and creating new companies um, than it is to just say it. So I, I agree that, you know, there's clever things. Bob has something to say about that, too.
0: I think the way IP comes out of large companies is uh, people working in these large companies feed the valley with guys who want to start companies yeah. by doing it differently and better. So that's the way IP leaves companies. It doesn't leave directly, but it leaves with a better version from someone who wants to start a company. And so I think, you know, you get, you've got these college graduates who are coming into the valley, you've got these people from the big companies who want to start companies, and you know, that's what feeds this valley. So
2: yeah, and the other thing I would say there is that, you know, people like to work on new projects. And realistically, um, it's counterintuitive, but the first thing that gets cut in a down economy is R no, mm-hmm. and D budgets at big companies. Whether the they're best. off balance sheet or on balance sheet, there's still money, and you know. No, the marketing first for <laughs> 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 that's because you're an engineer at heart. Uh, but but again that also contributes to new company creation for us as venture capitalists because people say gee I'm bored to tears you know uh, life is short you know I want to do something I want to change the world you know I really want to see some new technology especially something I've already thought about come to um, fruition and they leave the mothership versus saying why don't we do a you know a a partnership out of our R&D labs
1: we had a, let's see, back here, and then I'll come to you.
0: OK. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, OK. So y- you mentioned that startup costs are, are coming down some of the new innovation studies in this sort of software space. Yeah.
2: Well it's a very good question. Um, so, the, Every time a company comes in um, and, and several people ask me this is how much do we invest in our startup companies because we do the A round. So our last three A rounds which were done very recently one was two million dollars, one was one million dollars, one was six million dollars and one was four million dollars. They're all software companies, why were they so different? Because and when you take your first round of capital we sit down with you and say how far do you have to get to prove that you have a place on the market map to get your next round so every company is slightly different They're, the cost of developing the software just to build a software product but what are you going to do? just put it in the closet? You, you know, what's your route to market? what kind of um, do you need to build partnerships? so do you need a biz dev guy or not? Um, you know, what makes up the economic construction of a business around the software creation. Now, for somebody who's incubating companies and just wants to give people some money to, to start their, to build to, let's say, an alpha product, that number is lower and lower. That's not what we do. We, we don't say just, hey, try out a company. We're committing to help you build a company and so we really sit down with you and say what milestones do we have to get to so that when you raise your next round it'll, you'll be able to raise it and it'll be at a higher valuation for some companies where the technology is so new it might mean that you have to really demonstrate proof with quite a few customers so you have to build the first level of your sales organization for other companies it will be much more understandable to investors and you just have to prove that the thing works so you get the thing into the beta stage so that's why even though the cost of actually crafting software is lower the cost of building companies is is, is still efficient for software companies but is, is different on a company by company basis and we spend a lot of time you know sort of helping you construct with us you know, a business operating plan around you know building a business around the the product opportunity that gets you to market. This is some of the things that hopefully you'll be doing with UCS, the University of Santa University of California Santa Barbara, because uh, these are the skills that these guys they don't you know. It's it's like you say. Well, do you have an, an operating plan and? You know, you get kind of the grocery list of I'm going to hire three engineers, you know, have a room that's 20 by 20, and electricity and my computer cost this. Go great, okay. Got that. Now, how do you build a business around it? Um, so, it, it's an important question to be asked, and every company is slightly different. And as you can see, the range of four recent companies is a $5 million range for an A round. Yes, right here. What
1: do you- I believe in the ecosystem that's set up by venture capital, which you discussed. What do you think the valley leaders, the venture capital leaders in the the country, in all the different states where he's working, can do to influence the political situation now of buying companies and investing money in companies and keep propping up companies so that they're not competitive?
2: Well, I, I don't think it has, in the innovation areas that, you know, we're not funding any new financial institutions uh, we're not funding any car companies uh, we're not funding you know the, the things that, that that if you look at venture capital dollars uh, biotechnology energy is new maybe some new material sciences um, software hardware some semi we're not really affected by the propping up and we don't need the propping up money we just don't want our whole economy destroyed but I think what we need to worry wor- work on is what we can do and we're company builders and creators so you know we're not going to have any impact on whether General Motors gets a bailout or not realistically the venture capitals, capitalists in the country have an organization called the National Venture Capital Association uh, org. and they have um, some lobbyists that work on key issues on you know taxation issues or other sort of you know even some um, re- new regulations that might appear that might kind of steer us all off course we do our best there although we're not that good at that either um, you know our pack at uh, NBC org is pretty young and immature but I, I think really we should stick to our knitting because we're pretty good knitters at what we do um, you know and you know we all had our own say in you know who our elected officials were just you know a couple weeks ago, and we did our part there. Uh, but the the value we can add is rebuilding the economy from the bottoms up.
1: Take a couple more questions. So let me go here, and then I'll let Michael have the last one as our sponsor tonight. So yeah, you first, and then Michael.
3: And Sergio, I started my company uh, three years ago, and I have. If you could expand on what you were saying, that your job is to take the small companies to grow six and a half years. We started three, three years ago. Uh, first year was miserable. Second year...
2: But you survived it. That's really important. <laughs> the
3: second year we have revenue right now, the second, we've grown 300%. We need secure revenue for until December 2009. Uh, we're self-funded. We have the contracts on hand. And the question is, you were talking about from the time somebody sit down with you and signs with you and they go for the six years. Uh, I don't want to leave my job as a CEO for my company to start begging for money for six months. So I need to know when is the right time to start looking for venture capital because it takes a lot of time and a lot of meetings. And for, when you, is the right time to
2: for you, to- and you, you've, you know, you've done it without venture capital so, either so far. So... Far. so when my company became profitable and we were generating a bunch of cash, that's why we got acquired. Um, so, the, you know, as I got a larger company, venture capitalists started flying to Minneapolis to see me, um, which is a story in itself. Um, so, and and I kept asking myself, why would I take venture capital? And the reason that I thought is. Am I performing on natural acts because I don't have enough capital? Would capital make a difference? Um, First of all, you know, maybe you don't need any more outside capital. So if you feel like you really are sort of slightly crippling the business, not kneecapping it, but, you you know, you find yourself when you're doing your strategy reviews or whatever, that, hey, if I had a little more capital, you know I would have a more secure place on the market map there's business I can't get because I can't afford to hire that extra salesperson i really c- did not get the last guy to come and work for me because I couldn't quite pay the salary or they wanted to know did I have backers behind me when that stuff starts to happen then you're starting to pr- perform unnatural acts against your business opportunity and it's probably time to look for capital you're in an advantageous position where you, you, know, you can go out and meet venture capitalists and see if there's also a company builder that would sit on your board that you feel would also help you as a resource as well, that some unfair competitive advantage would happen not just from the money, but by having this venture capitalist and that venture firm associated with you so you should not think of it as going out for six months begging for money but auditioning for the investor that is may or may not be the right fit for you you know asking questions like hey you know what would you expect of me of the ceo you know um what, what would if you invested in me today what would you expect me to do a year from now two years from now and start that engagement The challenge I also had as a non-funded entrepreneur is, you know, I was a little petrified of what if I got these people on my board? What would happen then, you know? I mean, we're kind of doing a good job here. I'm sure we could do better. When my company was acquired, I was acquired by a New York Stock Exchange public company that was, you know, a big software company. It was called University Computing. It later merged with uh, Computer Associates. So I actually attended the board meetings and they were such a learning experience for me. I actually got a sense of how I was leading the company, you know, what the strategic cadence should be to move to the next level. So that six months that I sat on that board before I bolted for California, because um, I did discover that not only was winter optional, but I had enough money <laughs> to take the option. Uh, it was a really good learning experience for me. So. You sh- if you really are looking for venture capital and you have a viable business don't think of it as six months of leaving your post and begging for capital but six months of finding is there the right investor for you out there that's a fit for the long vision you have and can help you exceed your goals in that vision Yes. and I know Bob is funding later stage companies so you may want to talk to him
1: last question here um, before we, we come approach that there's usually big sides of the equation you
0: have the people, the management team that have come up with the idea and you've got the actual idea itself. In your experience have you found that you get a there's a better success rate if you fund companies where you've got a really solid management team, in other words are very business savvy, can continue to generate the innovative ideas. Or uh, companies where the management team might not be as solid but the idea is just so amazing that you can replace the management team. Or do you find that you know what, one or the other is not going
2: enough. you really need help. You know, this is a question asked by all venture capitalists. Is it the market opportunity or the team or both? And you're going to get different answers um, from different venture capitalists. If it's a small market, no matter how good the team, you're going to get a small company. So park that one aside. But I will tell you one quick story, the story of Jim and Bob. So um, I got sent this giant business plan. It was like Encyclopedia Britannica of, from, uh, from, for a company called Multi-Dimensional Solutions from a professor at Imperial College in uh, the UK. And, you know, I'm thumbing through it, and I thought, well, maybe I'll read the part about the product because I'm never going to read this whole thing. And that's another thing that, you know, if you send a big, thick plan like that, they are guaranteed to... Be swept into the desk. Um, so I read the stuff about the product and it was kind of interesting. So I said, Well, who are the people? And, the, and uh, this professor said, Oh, it's Jim and Bob. So Jim and Bob show up, and Bob was a sales guy for a company called ComShare, which was an old executive information system company and it kind of had gone nowhere. I mean, it was in that kind of 80s software company that came and went, got to maybe, you know, 70, 80 million in revenue, I don't know. And Bob was a a rocket scientist at the NASA Ames Research, Research Center, had never written any commercial software. And they show up, and I said, you know, okay, you know, this was an interesting section of the encyclopedia you sent. Um, Who are you guys? And Jim said, I'm the sales guy. And Bob goes, well, I, you know, I'm a a rocket scientist. And Bob actually spoke like that. And I said, and and got a great company name, multidimensional software. Wow. And uh, we don't name our companies, but that one was a mouthful. And... you know Bob said Jim said look you know I've been selling this executive information stuff for about five years and it's it's just terrible and we're not solving the problem because people really want to you know they they really do want to look at uh, you know all this data um, pulled together and so you know I sat around and thought of a product and I said well are you an engineer and he goes well I've worked with enough engineers that I figured it out and I went to this university and I found this guy and then they said, said get a programmer and somebody said there's this guy at a desk at NASA Ames so here I am and, I, and he goes in fact I've talked to 50 customers on my own I go wow 50 customers and so you know I call, hauled in John Hummer which is hard to haul in John Hummer at 610 I said John you know And I said, you know, they may have something here. I mean, this guy's been selling to these thousand customers at Comshare, and 50 of them said, this stuff doesn't work, but I might buy this stuff. And, um, you know, so we took Jim and Bob and stuck them in a car and said, let's go talk to, you know, the CFO of Sun and CFO of Cisco and see if they would buy this if they built it. So we got meetings with these guys and we put Jim and Bob at the blackboard and, in front of these CFOs and then they'd leave the room and the CFO goes yeah if they built this I'd buy this. That company um, became Arbor Software. Um, I, we asked them if they could rename it because nobody could s- multi-dimensional. and so Bob the um, rocket scientist says we've renamed it. I said great what's the new name? He said Arbor Software. go fine. I go how would you come up with Arbor? And he goes it's a street I live on. <laughs> Anyway, they invented, uh, Arbor ultimately became Hyperion. Uh, we gave the company $1. 1. $1.2 million. Um, Doug Leone and I were on the board. Sequoia gave them $1.2 million. Um, they raised another five from Mayfield, so they raised $7.5 million. They went public in 1995, the largest IPO, even larger than Netscape. Uh, and last year, Hyperion was purchased um, by um, oracle for 3.3 billion dollars so you know for most venture capitalists bob and jim would have been mutts you know they didn't go to any i mean they went even to less named universities than the university of st thomas in st paul minnesota at least people think i might have gone to school in the bahamas But you know but so they had no pedigree whatsoever but they brought the customer in the room they knew that there was a breakthrough opportunity, they went out and found the, the technology, they built a little prototype of how you, did, how you really did this uh, multidimensional analysis um, you know, with a spreadsheet view front end, so you created these OLAP cubes. Today there are 70,000 customers worldwide that their finance departments have an OLAP application installed. And if you're a CFO, you're likely using the Hyperion product. So I don't know if that answers your question, but we're, we kind of have a great love for the smart mutts who really can tell us unmet market needs. That's a
1: great story to conclude our evening on. But But I would say I think that says as much about you and John as it does about Jim and Bob, because you really have a, a nose for what's going to work and what's going to be successful because of all the years you
2: spent in the industry. So, well, remember we're only the opportunists and the entrepreneurs of the visionaries. So, you know, we're 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 nothing without the Jim and Bobs. So it really is all about the Jims and Bobs. Great, thanks. Well, thank you so much, Anne. We
1: really appreciate you being with us. Well, you will be able to see this video of our discussion tonight on YouTube University shortly. And you will also, we did a podcast earlier where I interviewed Anne, and we talked about some of these things and some other issues as well uh, that you will be able to listen to on iTunes if you would like to. So thank you so much for being here. We look forward to seeing you on April 7th, uh, where we'll have a... a a discussion about the healthcare industry. So, healthcare and software, two big industries doing a lot of interesting things and a lot of challenges in both. So, thank you so much and have a safe drive home.